Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by TSX Broadway, I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, President Trump's latest financial folly and the official end of a great American retailer. But first, the fight to fix student debt. So as you're no doubt aware, America is in more than a bit of a student loan crisis. They owe around $1.5 trillion to their alma maters, which is well more than they owe on things like credit cards or for auto loans. It has become a rallying cry for both sides of the political aisle and is expected to be a prominent topic in the 2020 presidential primaries, particularly from Bernie Sanders siders who want America's public universities to become free of charge. But there is another possible solution that's already being tested out, and it's called income share agreements. So if you haven't heard of these things, here's how they work. Students in this case don't pay any tuition up front. Instead, they get educated and, in exchange, agree to pay a percentage of future earnings back to the school. It's something Purdue University in Indiana has already been trying out, and it's also the model for a vocational education startup called the Lambda School, which just today announced $30 million in new venture capital funding. Now, Lambda is based in Silicon Valley, but most of its students aren't there. A lot of them are in the middle of the country, particularly in rural areas, and they learn online, with Lambda so far focused focusing on teaching coding skills, but also with plans to expand into cybersecurity programming and medical services like nursing. This year, Lambda expects to educate 3,000 students. And if they get jobs after graduation that pay at least $50,000 per year, then they're required to repay 17% of that for two years with a maximum total payment of 30 grand. So the idea is to get what you pay for before you pay for it and to better guarantee that students can actually afford to pay off their loans, all without sticking taxpayers with the bill. In 20 seconds, we'll go deeper on this with Lambda co-founder and CEO Austin Allred. But first, this. TSX Broadway will breathe new life into Times Square. A new 46-story tower has been completely reimagined to harness the power of one of the most iconic intersections in the world. With 75,000 square feet of retail, the area's only permanent outdoor stage and state-of-the-art technology to interact directly with consumers. Learn more about the future of retail at tsxbroadway.com. We're joined now by Austin Allred, co-founder and CEO of Lambda School. Austin, let's start a little bit with the backstory here. Education startups don't have a great history of success if you look in the past. So what prompted you to launch Lambda? So I moved to San Francisco from a small town in Utah. And what prompted me originally was just seeing the disparity in opportunity that was afforded to those relative locations. Basically, the people in Utah, you know, some of the smartest people I know making 20, 30K a year, they didn't have any good options outside of, you know, go to school for four years, put family on hold and hope it all works out on the other side. That was the real problem we set about solving. How can we de-risk getting a high paying education uh, for those folks? What you settled on, this kind of income share arrangement, was this something you had read about, had seen elsewhere? How did you come upon this as the model to base the school around financially? I'd always been intrigued by it. You know, it's been an idea since kind of the 50s when Milton Friedman proposed it. But, you know, originally we just said, okay, let's take a really good code school, let's put it online, and we charged up front for it. Basically, we got to the model we're at today just by asking employers what they want and asking students what they need and realizing that you know we're not going to solve the problem for students, even if it's a cheap education, if it's still really risky up front. And we're not going to solve the problem for employers if we're only spitting people out of a 12-week boot camp that 
doesn't really help them get to where they need to be. I'm curious. So the model and the way it works, and just from reading your website and the fact is, so I go through this program, which can last usually kind of, I guess, around 10 months and, and correct me when I screw this thing up. And then the idea is I go hopefully get a job. And if I get a job that's paying me at least $50,000 a year, then I start making repayments over two years. And it seems like if it's $50,000, if that's exactly what I made, I'd be paying about $8,500 a year. If I was making more, I'd pay more. And you guys cap the total payments at 30 grand. I'm curious, at what point does Lambda make its money back on a student? Uh, I'm not sure I want to comment on specific. I mean, we have to have a really good hiring rate in order for Lambda to, to become profitable. Awesome. One of the knocks on this sort of model is this concept. And look, every school, every school, no matter even if it's kind of a four year Ivy League school, obviously has admission requirements. Right. And they try to take the best and the brightest they can get. But in what you're doing, which is kind of trying to fill these skills gaps or these kind of labor gaps kind of via digital vocational training, it seems that because you guys do need to get paid back, that you're going to take the from your perspective, the best students and then possibly a bunch of the folks who have been left behind by the skills gap don't make the cut. Is that a valid criticism of the way this works? I don't think so. Um, I mean, so we look at it very differently than how traditional higher education would. Specifically, we don't care where you live. We don't care how much money you have. We don't care what your family history has been. We don't care what your GPA is. Um, so we're selecting out of a very, very different pool than most people are selecting from. And, you know, our average student comes up making 20 to 30K a year, if that. I actually think we're in a better place to take risks on students than higher education would for a very different reason, though, we're, because we're focused on something different. Um, so we consider ourselves as finding kind of the, the diamonds in the rough and the people who are overlooked by the rest of society. Do you feel that this model, the, the income share arrangement model, whether it be via Lambda or others, is it widely applicable? In other words, could this be how all higher education works? Or do you feel there are limits based on maybe that subject matter or something like that? So I do think it works for all of higher education. The trade-off of the income share agreement is that if you go into a field where you're going to make less money, you will pay relatively more on your income. But that's actually what's happening with student loans regardless, right? It's not it's not different if you go get $200,000 in student loans for say, a Russian literature degree, then you're still going to be paying a very high percentage of your income toward that degree. I think the difference with an income share agreement is that it's priced in before you sign up. So you know what you're getting into. On the argument about the Russian literature degree, would part of the counter argument to your counter argument be true, but folks might be less willing to offer a Russian literacy degree as an option, given the relatively low percentage of a, of a job placement compared to, say, a cybersecurity coder. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's accurate. You know, the other flip side that I haven't really heard considered is, you know, one school doesn't have to serve all students for all purposes, right? Um, we're, we're a vocational school. We're not, you know, trying to replace a liberal arts degree. We're trying to get people paid. And I think it's easier to study Russian literature after you can put food on the table. You know, I don't know if I agree that we should, you know, make sure that everybody's going into debt to study Russian literature. Maybe for some people that makes sense, but there probably is fair criticism that, you know, we're not the model for every type of education for everybody. But I don't think we have to be either. Austin Allred, co-founder and CEO of the Lambda School. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. 
My final two, right after this. TSX Broadway, Times Square's first full building brand platform, is driving the future of brick and mortar retail. Through digital customer engagement capabilities and unparalleled space flexibility, TSX Broadway will become a 75,000 square foot playground for the world's most ambitious brands to engage with their consumers on a more personal level. Learn more at tsxbroadway.com. And now it's time for my final two. And first up, most of today's media attention on President Trump concerns his speech tonight about border security and the government shutdown. But I wanted to quickly highlight something totally different. The White House yesterday said that Nellie Lang, who Trump nominated last year to serve on the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors, has withdrawn her name from consideration. The backstory is basically that Lang didn't seem to want to face what was expected to be a very tough Senate confirmation fight. And it makes sense it was going to be tough since the Senate is controlled by regulation busting Republicans and Lang is a Democrat who has endorsed strong Wall Street regulation, including parts of the Dodd-Frank bill that Republicans already scrapped last year. So again, Lang's withdrawal makes sense. What still doesn't, and what there's still no explanation for, is why Trump nominated her in the first place. And finally, CNBC reports this morning that Sears has decided to reject a last-minute rescue bid from chairman and former owner Eddie Lampert, setting the stage for the 126-year-old retailer to liquidate and close its doors. Now, this is obviously a disaster for tens of thousands of Sears employees and for tenants of malls that have used Sears as a cornerstone since they opened. But it's also a reminder of how even the most powerful company can be disrupted. Sears, with its popular catalog, was arguably the analog version of Amazon. And the Bezos Borg might seem invincible right now, but such things rarely last forever. And we're done. Thanks for listening. And to my producers, Adam Gracia and Tim Shovers, have a great national bubble bath day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.